0: I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is accountability expert Greg Buston, author of Accountability, The Key to Driving a High-Performance Culture. For the past three years, accountability expert Greg Buston has selected candidates for his best and worst in accountability survey based on events that occurred throughout the year. Corporate leaders are then asked to cast their votes for the most accountable and least accountable. Last year's survey drew an, an- international response. And when the votes were tallied up, REI CEO Jerry Streitsky was voted the most accountable and Volkswagen was named least accountable organization due to its rigid emissions testing in 11 million cars. Bustion is featured in the Wall Street Journal, Barron's and Financial Executive. Welcome to the show, Greg. Nice to have you on.
3: Thanks very much, Catherine. Delighted to be here.
0: All right. Well, what Greg what are the requirements for being an accountability expert, first of all? Because not all of us have heard of accountability experts. And then why, does, why do we, the public, why do we need to know this information? What's it going to do for us?
3: Well, accountability, accountability is a perennial problem, and I, and I, and I speak all over the world. I'm in, I'm in Knoxville, Tennessee. Right now I spoke to a group of business owners this morning, and I will tell you for a fact that even though these owners are very successful, even even the most successful owners uh, and presidents and executives struggle with accountability. And the reason that it's important is it's because how things get done or how they don't get done. And what makes it so hard is that we are all dealing with people. So whether you're making widgets or you're a technology firm or you're a, a service organization, it involves people and you are relying on people to do the things that they say they're going to do, and it's sometimes it's hard, sometimes it's messy, sometimes it's very emotional, and uh, my job is to uh, help people understand how to how to be their best.
0: How did you become an accountability expert? Where does this come from? You're a corporate consultant, uh, uh, so and you've been doing this what, for the past three years. Not no, the, of, the, not so, being. Well, <laughs> The accountability,
3: well, the survey, the, the survey, the survey. Done for the last three three years. Yeah. Uh, I, I ran I ran the division of a national uh, organization, then I ran the Dallas office of an international firm, and then I started my own firm about twenty years ago. And I came face to face with not only the work that we were doing with our our, uh, our clients, but uh, I became face to face. I came face to face with the fact that when your name is on the door, that's where the buck stops. So uh, I, learned, I learned the good, the bad, and the ugly of accountability, and now I've been doing this work for over, for over 15 years. And uh, I, I developed a, a workshop, and the workshop led me to write the book, and the book led me to develop the survey that we're talking about right now.
0: Okay, and I, I went online, and I think this has to do with the survey, or it has to do obviously which with what you do, but make better decisions and, and achieve better results. So I guess that's the goal, or that's the mission, or that's your mission. But is accountability, and I keep getting back to what does that mean in terms of because we could we're talking about corporations, it could be no, and then there's nonprofits, and then there's government too. So those are three different kinds of organizations and I guess you deal with all three of them uh, Greg is accountability uh, like when uh, our president-elect stands up at a press conference and tells us that he's going to divest himself let's say of all his business doings around the world and there's a big table filled with manila envelopes stuffed with papers I guess that are saying that hey I'm accountable this is an example of all this stuff that I've done that I'm not you know that I'm I'm giving up these are the papers that represent that is that accountability
3: well or the the lack or the lack of it uh the the the, the two terms that the two terms that get mixed up are responsibility and accountability and responsibility is being given a role like the one you're you're referencing here it could be corporate leaders it could be political leaders it could be not-for-profit leaders there is there is great responsibility in taking on a role or being given a task and saying you will do it whether or not you do it that's accountability so if you, if you do what you say you're going to do, that's accountability. And if you don't, that's the lack of it. And so that's what the survey is getting into is, is, to, is to cast a vote for people who, when a tough decision was needed, they, they, they made the, the right decision, even though it was a tough decision. And the scoundrels that are being nominated this, this year did exactly exactly the opposite. So they had an opportunity to do the right thing, they took another path, and that's why they're on the the list uh, to be considered for the worst. Volkswagen, you mentioned they were the they were the losers, the big loser last year. REI did the right thing by deciding to close their their stores on on Black Friday, which is the single biggest retail event in uh, in in the year. But they said our mission is all about getting people outside, outdoors. We're going to say, hey, go spend time with your family, go be outdoors, come back. Come back next week, and let's, let's open the doors, and then we'll, we'll go back to business. So it's a very striking difference of facing a tough choice, an ethical choice. Usually there's, there's money involved, and uh, it's, it's the difference between doing the right thing and trying to cut a corner.
0: What is it about certain companies, and now we're talking about corporations, obviously, what, what is it about those companies? Is it, is, is it the CEO or primarily the CEO who is the one who's the leader, who says who makes these decisions and makes good choices for himself, for the, for the company, and, and for all of us, really? Where does that come from?
3: Well, it, it starts at the top. A fish rots from the head, and you only have to look at Wells Fargo as an example to, to, to read the reports coming out there that, that there was a culture that encouraged people to essentially lie and falsify information in order to meet quotas that had been handed down right right from the top so the reason that we, we focus on on the top is that that person sets sets the tone creates and nurtures the culture of whether or not it's going to be uh, a toxic culture or whether it's going to be the kind of culture that is that is encouraged to do, the, to do the right thing, even when doing the right thing is difficult. So, yes, it starts at the top.
0: How do you, when you say it starts at the top, and you, you've obviously you have you know direct or hands-on experience with these different CEOs who do make the right choices and do the right thing, where do they come from? Is, the, is there some kind of common denominator that, that you see or that you've experienced in dealing or making a connection with these leaders at the top?
3: Well, there is, and it's a, it's a, it's a great question because when I, when I began this research seven years ago, I went looking for a silver bullet. What's the, what's the one thing that, that distinguishes uh, a, a high-performing culture where, a co- where, where accountability matters from all the ones who either just talk about it but don't do it? I was, I was looking for that one thing, and, and what I found was a, was a collection of beliefs that I call the seven pillars of accountability. And those seven pillars are character, unity, learning, tracking, urgency, reputation, and evolving. And that spells culture. And it all starts at the top and it all starts with character. So if, if these people are, are in, in, inclined to make bad decisions and that's who they are, that, that's, that's who they are. And that's, and that's, and that's, going, and that's going to happen. I will point out that in this year's survey, in the past we included we included some some not-for-profits, like we had the the the, uh, the 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 World Soccer Association, and we we had countries and politicians. The VHA won for being, if you can call it winning, they they, they got the most votes for being the worst. If you remember the VHA uh, uh, situation three three years ago, but we decided this year there there are so many. Uh, bad politicians out there. There's so many great not-for-profits that are trying to do the right thing. And really what I wanted to do, because my focus is primarily business, working with business leaders, we decided to limit the five best and the five worst candidates strictly to corporations. So it's strictly focused on, strictly focused on business.
0: Greg, I'd like to get back to the acronym, culture, because I think that's really obviously key. Uh, character... Unity. Can we go through each one of those? Because you say there are so many now leaders, whether it's in politics, corporations, you know, corporations are your area of expertise, but who don't really have character and who don't really exemplify these, this, this acronym of culture. And I guess the first question is, like, why now and what do we do about it? And are things getting worse in terms of leadership, in terms of leaders making the right choices? Um, or are, you know what is happening? Let's say today. I mean, in mean, politics, obviously, I, we could go. I could talk a lot about that, but let's talk about corporate culture.
3: Sure. Well, I I think the thing is is that what you find, especially that when times are good, that it's it's easier to look the other way. And and we we've enjoyed certainly since the oh eight oh nine recession, uh, business has been on an uptick. I mean, I, what I would tell you though is that this that this um, uh, uh, behavior that we're seeing is, is cyclical. But during good times, it's easier to look the other way, to say, um, oh, we can just cut that corner, or uh, maybe, maybe the news doesn't travel all the way up to the boss because the boss has a habit of shooting the messenger. The boss does not want to hear the, the, the tough news. So, so whatever the case may be, it, it, it always does start with, with character, and and it, it 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 comes into this 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 idea of of having values that that really are valuable that 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 articulate our rules of the, of engagement that say this is how we're going to play the game. And you, you, I, I go into an office and I and I see uh, a a. a uh, uh, a, a set of values on the wall and one of the values is collaboration but they brought me in because they can't play well together right they're, they're, there's, a, there's, no, there's no trust there's no, there's no uh, ability to speak the truth to power and yet they've got these values hanging up on their wall that says oh we're all about integrity we're all about collaboration and I call BS on that because you're not being true to the things that you say you really stand for and so it really does start with saying what is it that we stand for and how much are we willing to tolerate when when people uh, don't abide by the things that we say are are valuable. So that's really that's really where it starts and I think that when things are good, when times are good, it's easier to look the other way and say oh that's just a one off or you know that's an anomaly or whatever the case may be and what I would say Certainly, after after time, what you see is eventually, you know, this bad stuff is going to bubble up and and become exposed.
0: Well, take these companies who they say one thing and are doing another. As you say, they say they have integrity and character, and uh, but they're not really practicing that. But they are bringing you in there so there is an awareness or a realization that this isn't working or what we're doing isn't working. It's it's not good for us and it's not good for the company. And I guess it's not good for the bottom line.
3: Well, that's that's exactly right. So I was in Austin, Texas um, uh, two days ago and I got an email from a CEO this morning who said, thanks, thanks for the workshop. Uh, the message that you delivered was really hard for me to hear. and And I had given... The, uh, the CEOs in, in, in this room the opportunity to take an assessment that, that, that allowed them to self-assess uh, how they were performing in each of these seven pillars. So I had a bunch of questions that, that I asked them, and I gave them the assessment, and they scored it up, and, and this particular executive, who is successful, but nevertheless, when, when the scores are tallied, Uh, they're getting a a really, a really bad grade. And, and, you know, the, the email that I got this morning said, I needed to hear this. I knew it was going to be, as soon as I got through the assessment, I knew I was going to get a bad score. I needed to hear this. And uh, now we've got to figure out how we make it happen. And that's really, that's really the $64,000 question, because in, in this particular case, there's an awareness, but there's also a hesitancy among this, this executive's staff to be able to go to this executive and say, Here, here's here's what we're seeing. Here's here's our experience. Because sometimes, either because the executive, as I said earlier, shoots the messenger or because they've got a blind spot or they have an inflated view of things, they may not necessarily believe that or want to hear it or they may respond very badly when they get news from, from other people. and And so... It ends up being, a, you know, a, a, the, the first place that we start is to say, look, let's have everybody on your team take this assessment so that we can have a clear starting point and just open up the conversation. It's not important that you get a, 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 a great score. What's important is that you begin to get the realization that you could be doing better and here some places to focus on that. So that's usually the first step that I take when I go in and work with companies is to say, let's get a let's get, let's set the benchmark. And let's get some understanding and let's see, let's see what kind of a gap there is. 80% of the time, 80% of the time, whoever is in charge has a more inflated view of how their organization is performing than those on his or her team.
0: Because you do say in your book, as I understand it, you say in high-performing organizations, accountability is not just the top-down, it's bottom-up and side-to-side side as well.
3: That's right. That, that's right, but it's, but, it, but it's got to be – the culture has to be able to encourage that. So one of the things that I do as an exercise is to, is to say, hey, everybody write down. Write down uh, a time when they were on a high-performing work team and write down what that team was trying to accomplish and write down three or four words that characterize what made this team so awesome for you. I did that yesterday here in Knoxville, and we went around the room. We had 20 people in the room. And I said, I just would like to get a couple of examples of people that had a great uh, workplace experience. And and one CEO raises his hand, and I said, okay, you, you go, sir. He said it was when I was 18 years old and working on my high school yearbook. And I'm like, how long ago was that? He says, 42 years ago. And
0: I'm like, man, that is a long, a long time. That's a long time ago, yeah.
3: That's a long time. And I said, so what's the, what's the next logical question that you ought to be asking yourself? And he's like, how come I'm not replicating that experience today? I'm like, that's yeah. exactly right.
0: He said 42 years to think about it.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, see, these are, these are smart people. And for most of them, they know. They, they they know, uh, but but the doing is is very hard, and it, 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 it's very hard because what it what it entails, Catherine is it, it entails have, having the courage to say if this is what we really stand for, and and we've got we've got a we've got a top producer on our team, and I don't care whether that top producer is somebody that understands how to fix you know leaky faucets or somebody who is a high producer in sales or somebody who knows how to operate all the machinery, that's great. But if they are not following the values, if there's, not, if there's not a sense of trust and care and integrity, and they're a high performer, I would argue they're not a high performer. And so what happens is, as the leader, you have to have the courage to step into that and say, man, I love the job that you're doing, but the way you're doing it is, 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 is toxic to the things that we say we stand for. And, and so you need to either come along and, 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 and agree to, to play by these rules of engagement that we call our values, or it's probably going to make sense for you to go someplace else where you can be valued just for your skills. So that's, that's the kind of dynamic that, that we're talking about, and that's hard to do when you have a, an otherwise high performer, but who's not playing by the rules and I'm not saying that they're lying cheating or stealing. I'm just saying that they are not playing by the that they're not playing in a way that that makes that, that makes you want to work with them or, or they feel that they are above the rules. And the reason that they can be above the rules is because they know they're a high performer. Those people are pirates and they're holding you hostage. And And so what you've got to do as a leader is you've got to say, okay, as much as i may like you and as much as i may like what you're doing you're you're having an adverse effect on our on our workplace environment because you're not you're not playing by the 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 values that we say we stand for
0: so you have to be ready as the leader to to, to let them go if 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 it doesn't change right i mean even though they may Absolutely. be high perf- yep, they they may Absolutely. be high performers but they're not, as you say, living up to the values of the organization. I think one of them, and I think this was an example that you had in 2014, CVS, uh, Caremark CEO Larry Merlot was selected as the most accountable person in 2014. I want to bring that up because this seems like a really difficult decision. He decided to stop selling tobacco products in a place where healthcare is delivered with a $2 billion at stake. Um, talk to us about that example or that incident because, boy, that's a lot of money and uh, uh, those kinds of decisions I I would imagine are very difficult to make or those choices.
3: Well, it it, is, and and you hit the nail on the head and that's what accountability is. Accountability is a choice. It's a mindset. It's a decision to either say this is what I stand for and mean it or to say one thing and do another. And so in the case of CVS, the reason that the people that voted CBS a, a winner is because they look at that and they go, wow! If this company is really committed to being a healthcare company, the CEO says that that's we're, we're saying one we're saying one thing, but we're acting another way. We're saying we're a healthcare company that sells tobacco products, and that's that's out of alignment, right? And so they, I'm sure they did the financial calculation for all of that, and part of what they decided to do was they said they were going to exit tobacco and they were going to increase. The ability to to create really in store, uh, uh, you know, kind of urgent care, low level, you know, healthcare stuff to be able to help people uh, either prevent uh, illness or or to recover more more quickly from you know things like the common cold and you know things like that. So that was the trade off that they made. And so clearly, there's there are financial uh, uh, stakes that, that that have to be calculated in, in all of this, but part of the part of the thinking was if we say this is what we're going to stand for, at some point somebody's going to call us on that and say, you're not being true to the things that you say. You're 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 creating a double standard or you're wanting to have your cake and eat it too. And at some point you've got to choose. And so they said, We're going to choose health care and we're going to double down on that and we understand that it's going to have some some, some near-term impacts in terms of lost sales in tobacco products, but we think that we've got an idea of things that we can do to do a better job, to do a more aggressive job of, of providing for and promoting health care, wellness.
0: Wellness. And, you know, that's a good example because as a layperson, I think I more and more get distrustful of uh, the Big companies, whether it's a car company or whether it's a pharmacy or whatever it is or, uh, the food industry. Um, cause I'm really not so sure that they have my best interest in mind. And it is always related to the bottom line. So there's a, a piece that has to, you have to kind of, in, I think, engage the public as well, don't you? So that they begin to trust you and your choices that you are making good decisions for the company as well as for, for all of us. Um, well, you're exactly and, right,
3: Catherine. And, and because this is America, we do get to choose. And when we feel that somebody is being dishonest or trying to manipulate us or you know hiding something from us, then we're going to make another decision. And so I'm not I'm not saying that these are all just do-gooders. I'm I'm saying that they are doing good and, and they are being good business people. And what what they are seeing is that being good and being good business people is not mutually exclusive like the example you used with with last year's winner of REI. And they said, look, we're all about the outdoors. We believe in this. We're just going to be shut on Black Friday. And as a result, they, they, had, a, they had a terrific uh, uh, retail Christmas season last year. And and people, vote, the voters that, that voted them, the, the winner in last year's survey, appreciate that. And, and by the same token, with, with Volkswagen, which was the loser last year, people felt totally uh, Manipulated and and cheated, and they said you told us one thing, you did another, you made a bunch of money off of us, and um, we're not going to give you our business anymore. And I don't know if you saw those guys; they're in the news yesterday, today. You know, in the last in the last few days, and uh, six of those executives have now been indicted. Four point three billion dollars is what is what Volkswagen is going to pay. in in fines and fees, that's just the money they've lost. Try to calculate the reputation they've lost. That's what we're talking about.
0: So in the end, I I think what you are saying is in the end, usually, and when things begin to happen or things get bad or whether it's the economy or stuff happens internally in the company, then everything blows up and they lose anyway. It, it really, well, what happened obviously with Volkswagen. And I think the other thing is we at the public do have a lot more information on a daily basis. So we can judge and there are more choices. Like you said, we can go to other companies to, to get what we need, whatever the product is. So there, this accountability, I, I think it's helpful in terms of, of, of the, and you tell me, but in terms of the media and the information that we have, ac- and your book, that we have access to, right?
3: Well, that's right. I mean, the, one of the, one of the candidates for uh, one uh, one of the best. I'll give you two very quickly. Apple, right? The FBI says we want you to make our code available, right? And, and with with the, with the terrorist thing, and Apple said we're all about privacy. We're going to stand on that, and eventually. The FBI found a way around, but Apple said, "This is the de- this is the deal. This is important. This is one of the this is one of the top principles of how we of how we do business. People want protection. They want anonymity. They want confidentiality, and we're not going to budge on that. and And, and, and that that could have been that could have gone the, the, the other way. The Walt Disney Company is another example. Remember the alligator attack." And, and and what Bob Iger did, the CEO said, okay, they could have just said, okay, we're going to look into this and we're going to get it right. But what Iger did at the height of, of the tourist season is he shut the place down for a month to get to the bottom of it. And I mean, think of the think of the dollars short term that he lost, but think of the goodwill that he earned for people saying, wow, he did the right thing. He wasn't just trying to figure out how I can get this fixed and get right back into business again. There's a, there's a there's a sense that they, they, they got to the root cause of that alligator attack and there was a sense of okay let's let's take some time to get this right and I think the the, the public folks like you and I appreciate things like that
0: absolutely I think those are two great examples and two great examples that we have to uh, say goodbye on because we've uh, our next guest is here but uh, you yeah, know those are great examples and it is and I do appreciate it I, I as as part of the general public, Um, your book, Accountability, The Key to Driving a High-Performance Culture. You can buy the book online, bookstores everywhere, uh, and give us a website that we can go to to learn more about you, what you're doing, and the book.
3: Well, go to bustin.com, B-U-S-T-I-N.com, and right on the homepage you can click. The candidates will come up for the best and the worst. It'll take you about two minutes to vote, read a little description, cast your vote, and receive a free personal accountability worksheet.
0: Great. Thanks, Greg. Have a safe trip. Um, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show.
1: Have you found the beauty inside of you?
2: together in conversations that make a difference right here on the Voice America Business Channel every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788.
0: I'm Katherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Katherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is psychologist Holly Parker, PhD, and author, If We're Together, Why Do I Feel So Alone? How to Build Intimacy with an Emotionally Unavailable Partner. Living with an emotionally absent partner can be overwhelming. Constantly overcoming a silent distance can leave the sense that the give and take in a relationship has disappeared. But even the most broken relationship can be reinvigorated. In helping real-world couples achieve a fulfilling future, Harvard University clinical psychologist Dr. Holly Parker has developed a program filled with practical exercises and powerful advice for individuals on both sides of an emotionally damaged relationship. Dr. Parker's featured in Self Magazine, Glamour, Cosmopolitan, Prevention, and ABC News. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Holly.
1: Oh, thank you so much. It's a real honor and a pleasure to be on your show, and I hope that you and your listeners are having a beautiful day.
0: I'm having a beautiful day, and I hope they are, too. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Um, I am. I am. (laughs) Well, we're talking about living with an emotionally Absent partner. Okay, that definitely can be overwhelming. Yes. But the real, but the question is, Holly. I I guess the first question is, how do we know we're living with an emotionally absent partner? How do we define it?
1: Ah, yes. Um, So you know, it's it's interesting, right? That emotional unavailability is a term that gets used a lot, uh, but oftentimes we don't think about what it really means. Uh, And so I think it's definitely worth thinking about that. Uh, It really is when someone is. Uh, unwilling or unable to build an emotional bond with another person. Uh, it's when someone is not actively engaging in uh, creating or maintaining a relationship that is mutually fulfilling and gratifying. And, you know, it, it can be challenging to identify uh, the signs of unavailability because you know, really everybody uh, stumbles and falls in the unavailability department um, at times. And so, you know, people can be off their game. Uh, You know, they can be less than responsive. They cannot be tuned in. And so what is the point um, where uh, there could be a sign of unavailability? I think really when people can notice that uh, it's gone from, a few times, uh, occasional missteps, to something that's really more like a habit or a pattern. Um, And so, you know, it it can take some time to suss it out. But that said, there are certain indicators that people might want to watch out for. Um, Some are just in terms of how the relationship feels. If it doesn't feel fulfilling, if it feels... Stifling, right? That if it feels like maybe um, a person doesn't have uh, freedom to be themselves, they don't feel like they have room to really develop as a separate individual within the relationship, um, a partner who doesn't uh, approach them in a a warm and caring way, someone who uh, doesn't seem to be a steady, emotional presence in the relationship, right? That one day it, it could be that they, they seem connected and the next, you know, who knows what it's going to bring. Uh, somebody, what would be the
0: difference? Mm-hmm. I, I'm yeah. just going to interrupt you for a minute, but like no, the no, difference please. between, uh, yeah, like uh, distracted. I mean, what very often couples will be, because there are so many distractions and people mm-hmm. couples are so busy, whether they have children or not, but jobs mm-hmm. and, and they're so involved in all kinds mm-hmm. of things. And there's this feeling that, my partner's always just dis- distracted. You know, I, I there's never a time when we can really sit down and talk. That's different than somebody who's emotionally absent. that that that's a different category, right?
1: Well, if somebody if is distracted, I, I think a big difference, because, you know, I mean, people lead busy lives, right? I mean, there's so many different competing demands and ways that people can be uh, pulled away from their relationship. I think uh, an important aspect of this, I mean, if, if people allow themselves to be distracted and don't attempt to course correct that, uh, so they don't try to find places where they can connect even for a few minutes at a time in the day, Um, you know, and and couples will do this who are connected. They might, um, you know, give each other a text and let them know their, you know, their their partner that they're thinking of them. Um, Or um, couples will um, try to find ways to build little rituals into their day, right? So it might be, uh, you know, we've been at work all day. We've put the kids to bed. Let's just, you know, have some time, you know, if we can to talk and connect, even if it's just for a few minutes. Not that people always do that. I mean, they can flop into bed and just, you know, knock out because they're exhausted. Um, but I think overall there's an attempt to try to course correct and tune into each other and that, um, that there's an understanding that at least if, if people are distracted, that they would uh, note that and they would try to talk to each other about that. If people allow themselves to be um, distracted all the time and they don't try to change that, that actually can be uh, a form of unavailability because really – you know, that would be uh, the point where two people aren't actively engaged in maintaining an emotional bond, uh, where they're not actively engaged in developing a more uh, fulfilling relationship and they're not trying to take it to a more connected level. Um, but it, it's, I, I think that as long as people catch it um, and they try to address it, then, I, then that's really what's key. I think what your question nicely gets at is, how um dimensional emotional unavailability can be that um it's not that we're either uh, available or unavailable that we can actually slide. I think of it a lot more like a ruler. We can slide and be increasingly available um, or we can move the other way and be increasingly unavailable.
0: yeah, I think that's a good point. And I think one of the th- it's when you were as you were talking, I was thinking about, couples who, even if there is a window of availability in terms of time in, mm-hmm. in, in, say, in a busy couple's life, and they do have a half an hour, usually the unavailable personality even, and they're sitting there in, the, in their living room or in their den, won't take the opportunity. They're still not available, even though they have the time, even though it's maybe right. a short period of time. And they're still distant, and they're still not able to connect with their partner. Mm-hmm. Um So, Yeah. And, and then you know you have a problem.
1: That's uh, right, yeah. If, if they're not willing to try to turn the tide exactly the way you put it is exactly spot on.
0: Now, you're talking about in the book unavailable personality types, and you list several. Critic, the sponge, the iceberg, the emotional silencer. Um, can we talk about each one of those and put them in a context?
1: Sure, sure, absolutely. In fact, actually, the... Um, one thing that, that, um, that I invite people to think about um, with each of these types Um, is, you know, again, really like emotional unavailability is not a box that we can jump into or jump out of. It's more of a ruler. Um, I think of these types in very much the same way, that um, they really reflect not so much these uh, discrete categories that, that, um, you know, people can cleanly fall into because, you know, people are messy. Um, You know, we, we actually often don't fit into these neat little boxes, but really more like challenges that people can um encounter in their relationship to more or varying degrees. Um, and so one one example um, with the sponge, this would be someone who is um, very unhappy with um, him or herself, um, you know, may not have a lot of uh, purpose or meaning in life, and finds themselves uh, seeking The partner and the relationship to provide that meaning and happiness rather than looking to cultivate it within themselves. And the challenge um, is that they also,
0: you
1: know, they, they don't really, just as they seek their partner for meaning and happiness, they also have a hard time allowing their partner's love in to really accept it. So, for example, if if their partner does something nice for them, they might be skeptical of it. Like, oh, God, you know, is the hammer going to fall here? Are they about to leave me? Why are they doing this nice thing for me? And so they never really get to be satisfied totally. Uh, the critic is another one. This is somebody who I think of as the inverse um, of somebody who wears rose-colored glasses. This is someone who is pinpointing the faults. What's wrong? Criticizing, um, and even when they can find a place to praise, they're looking at um, where things still aren't going right. That it, you know, it's hard to give absolute praise. Um, another one is uh, the iceberg. This is somebody who tends to keep emotional connection at arm's distance. Um, someone who's likely to minimize the importance of relationships. Um, you know, someone who might not see uh, a lot of benefit in being very close and intimate with someone. Uh, another would be the fearful fraud. This is somebody who presents a false front. They're afraid that, um, you know, if, if God, if I, my partner figured out who I am, maybe they wouldn't want to be with me anymore. Maybe they would reject me. So this is somebody who um, will hide, um, you know, Parts of themselves uh, may not bring up issues in the relationship for fear of conflict and tipping over the apple cart. Uh, This is someone who may be afraid of um, raising and being honest about their own preferences and needs uh, because they're concerned that it would harm the relationship. Another one is the defender, and this is somebody who wears an emotional shield. That shield uh, can come up against threats that are real, um, like, um, you know, a a criticism that really stings, um, you know, rejection that um, is looming and really seems to be imminent, or it can also be imagined, right? So it can be um, something, uh, rejection or criticism that somebody fears. And uh, the attack, the, de- the defender will, will either erect that shield by going on the attack um, and criticizing back, blaming, um, denying, uh, or they might do the opposite um, and either you know, refuse to have a conversation, um, you know, abruptly walking away, uh, or doing what John Gottman uh, calls uh, stonewalling, just kind of emotionally checking out. And then finally, the fifth type is the emotional silencer. This is an individual who really has a hard time um, connecting with their feelings, either because they can't. Uh, For example, they may not be able to detect um, signs of distress in their body and kind of connect with their body and know what it is that they're feeling physically, um, or they may not be able to connect um, emotionally or may not want to. Uh, They may hold their emotions away at arm's length, and they also may not want to talk about other people's feelings or hear them. Um, So they may not be particularly responsive to more emotional conversations.
0: In identifying, which which you just did, these personality types, Mm -hmm. what about... Is there? Do these evolve, or is this something when you start to get invo- involved with someone in a relationship, and you first meet someone, and you be, date them, or it gets serious, and you may consider, uh, you know, spending, you know, having a monogamous relationship with them, or getting married, or whatever? Can you recognize these characteristics immediately? Or are they something that evolve as you get more? I don't want to use the word "enmeshed," but as you get, you know, closer and together in the relationship and, and sure. have a, a commitment,
1: right? Yeah, no, I hear you. I know exactly what you're asking. Um, I, uh, I, it can happen either way. Um, there are times when, and, and I think that the way that you described it was um, was beautiful. That you know, when people are first dating, um, you know, things like that can be hidden. So maybe going out to dinner. Spending the weekend together, uh, that, that's something that people may not necessarily see. People can be very good at hiding um, some of their vulnerabilities. So if they're very afraid um, or if they uh, don't feel happy with themselves or they're frightened of intimacy, it may not come up at that early point. Or if they, if they minimize, uh, you know, wanting connection but they're just out there dating, that's something that won't be obvious at first. Uh, It can be. I mean, if if, if the the, um, alarm, if the unavailability alarm sounds loudly enough and early enough, uh, it can be something that people detect, but it really does take, as you indicated, um, time to become closer as a couple, to spend more time together. Um, you know, this could be something that people may not really notice until they're living together. It can be something they noticed before, but, you know, really it's related to time spent. And also, people can, when they, when they care about somebody and they're motivated to give their partner the benefit of the doubt and not want to see a problem, can find ways the human mind is amazing at finding ways of justifying things um, and you know, kind of giving, giving ourselves um, a bit of uh, a brush off from what we don't want to see. And so it can be something that, that the unavailable person can hide. It can be something that um, in a relationship, and anybody can do this, uh, somebody in a relationship just may not want to see some of the early signs. Also, it can be hard to see them early on. Another another uh, way in which this can happen is emotional unavailability, uh, sadly, can evolve in a couple. So if we think about a couple where uh, resentment has built up and there's a lot of water under the bridge and They aren't talking about it. They're not dealing with it. And instead, they're retreating to their own corner. Um, Or if somebody encounters uh, a battle with depression um, or they encounter trauma, there are a number of different ways um, where people can be affected by things that um, can make them more available later. Addiction is another example.
0: What about expectations? I always mm-hmm. think about this, you know, expectations are different and you kind of touched on that in the beginning and maybe, yes. you know, you're really attracted to somebody. So, I mean, sex is really important and that changes mm-hmm. over time too. And, but in the beginning, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's something that sort of is, is just, you know, right there in the, in the, in the relationship, the chemistry. Uh, but maybe as one is with somebody over time, over a long period of time, your expectations for intimacy change, and perhaps you want one wants more intimacy, not that they wanted it in the beginning, but now one of the you know they do, and the other person is not able to connect in that way and never was able to connect in that way, but you never noticed it because you never really expected it perhaps
1: uh you you know what it, it, expectations uh are so much, right? They mean so much and they're, they're, they're such a vital part of the equation too. Part of how it can happen um, is people can have um, excessively high expectations, right? Um, and that can actually create distance in a relationship. So um, one of the things that, um, one of the big mistakes that people can make is they'll have these high expectations and um, try to change their partner, and people try to change their partner a lot. And that actually, even, even though they do it from a well-intentioned place, um, you know, to, to try to, um, you know, make themselves happier, they think, okay, if my partner changes, this is going to be the way that things are going to get better. Um, what often winds up happening is when people, one person tries to change another that tends to not, uh, one, you know, there's no guarantee that it's going to be effective, um, and two, uh, that can be a way of um, building a wedge between people, especially, it's not that people can't ask for change in certain ways, um, but if they're, um, you know, really asking for a lot of change, that can be an issue. Um, But the other way in which expectations can happen um, is exactly the way you mentioned That Somebody might say, well, you know, God, we, we, you know, we've, never really, we've never really talked a whole lot um, about some of the deeper things that we feel. And we've never you know, really shared a whole lot about our history. And I'm at this point where we've been together for 10 years. I really want to do that. Let's start talking about it. And the other partner may say, well, no, I don't, I don't want to take this any farther. Um, and so then a, a vulnerability can come up that was never there. At the same time, it can also work the other way so people can believe that, um, well, you know, it's the natural course of a relationship to go downhill. By the way, the science suggests that's not the case. Um, there's new data that, that, that is debunking that. Um, and so people can take that idea, though. It's, it's a very prominent idea in our culture that the natural cascade of relationships is to go from this really star, you know, star in the sky point to, you know, kind of wane down. Um, and so what people might do is, is let their expectations fall and so then if people really aren't being intimate anymore, if they're not uh, paying attention to each other anymore, they say, well, you know, hey, that, that's, just, that's just the way marriage is, right? Um, and it becomes a way to justify uh, a decline in the relationship.
0: So what do we do? Uh, mm-hmm. Let's say we get to the point where... It's not working. And I think I was just actually talking to a, a friend of mine, a, a colleague, who stayed in a marriage for over 30 years and, and mm-hmm. was now beginning to sort of take a real look at herself and say, why did I stay with mm-hmm. someone who, as you've been describing these different categories, falls into at least two of them? Uh, why didn't, why couldn't I, you know, this person was not emotionally available, was not available, Mm-mm. but I wasn't able to leave um, yeah. I didn't answer her question, so I'm going to ask you the. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Because sometimes you do have to, it doesn't work. It, you can't always, in, as you say, invigorate the relationship, but you really have to be able to say, this isn't working.
1: That's absolutely true. And, and you know, it, it, is, it is painful to straddle a picket fence. And that's, that's one of the big things that I think about when I think about ambivalence in a relationship is feeling stuck, not knowing what to do, um, wanting things to be better on the one hand and wanting to build the relationship. And on the other hand, thinking, oh, God, you know, it, there's got to be more to life. You know, do, do I want to stay in this forever? Um, and, uh, and it's something that's very, very common, um, very human, very under, understandable thing to do. And, uh, and it's hard to recognize that, you know what, maybe I need to walk away. And, um, you know, as, as uh, somebody who cares deeply about relationships, um, and I say this because I care about relationships, not everybody belongs together. And uh, not every relationship should be saved. Um, sometimes the best outcome is for someone to leave. Um, that's a very private decision for each person to make. Um, But I think it it is important for people to um, think um, about their situation, to be honest with themselves, um, to give themselves time and space to really reflect on – their place in the relationship and what they want to do. And I think that no matter whether people decide to put both feet in and fight for the relationship or if they decide, you know what, I, I think I need to leave, um, that ultimately um, staying in ambivalence um, is the most important thing for people to try to avoid um, if they can. And I think that, you know, certain questions that people can ask themselves, um, you know, would really be, uh, so what would be, what would be for me the minimal amount of change that I would need to see for me to want to stay? Uh, so really kind of for people to start to uh, give themselves a concrete understanding of what it is that they're looking for. Um, has the partner always been unavailable? Um Or was there a time when they were available and then maybe there's a way that they could change? What is it that they appreciate about their partner and the relationship? What keeps them in the relationship? Um, Why do they want to stay? What are their reasons for leaving? And I think when people can allow themselves to really reflect on where they are in their lives, um, what it is that they're thinking of in terms of their hope for the relationship, um, as well as... Uh, their vision of what it could look like if they were to leave, for better or for worse, um, I, I think that's that's a really important first step.
0: I, I mean, I th- I think this is why your book is so good because you are really specific about re- you know I think and really give these guidelines for people so that um, there's nothing amorphous about it. I mean, if you're struggling with this issue, I mean, so I we only have a couple minutes left, so that's why I I, I do want to encourage people to get the, if we were together, why do I feel so alone? Because I think this is a problem that really pervades. I mean, as a social worker, I see this all the time. So I think it's really an important topic. And Dr. Holly Parker is the author. Um, Holly, uh, where uh, we can go online. What uh, websites do you want us to go to? Uh, You can buy the book online, bookstores everywhere, but websites that we can go to. Yeah, Yeah,
1: no. um, so uh, anyone can uh, visit my website at drhollyparker.com, and they can also, um, I'm a writer uh, for Psychology Today, so they can also go to my blog on Psychology Today. The blog is called Your Future Self, um, because it's all about making decisions uh today for how we can build the life we want later on uh and people can also contact me and reach out uh, on twitter at uh dr holly parker
0: great it's been great talking to you today um oh, it's been
1: wonderful talking to you too
0: yeah and there, and there is so much more in the book i mean we just covered a little bit but uh you know, gave everybody a taste of it so um dr holly parker thanks so much i'm katherine zox your social worker with a microphone and you're listening to the katherine zox show